I'm going to cover over two evenings nine signs of the return of Jesus Christ. What has the church always believed? When I mean the church, I mean the universal body of Christ from the church that was founded by Jesus and the apostles down to the local churches you go to. What has the church always believed about the return of Jesus Christ? And this is common information because it's found in creeds and confessions. Probably the oldest creed, at least the core of this oldest creed, is the Apostles' Creed. How many of you have heard of the Apostles' Creed? It was written in Rome probably sometime during the hundreds A.D. The Apostles' Creed says that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Every person who is an Orthodox Christian, every person who is a Bible-believing Christian believes that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's something that everybody has agreed on, whether they're Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, they've all agreed on that. And there's another creed. It's a little bit later. It was written in the 300s. It's called the Nicene Creed. This creed says about the return of Jesus Christ that he, Jesus, will come again to judge the living and the dead, but he will come in glory so they just added the word glory. And Jesus talks about when he comes in his Father's glory. So in other words, when Jesus returns, you're not going to miss it if you're alive. It's like going to be, hey, buddy, do you think Jesus may have come? Uh, no, because no glory. When Christ comes, you will know it. You will know it. Nobody will be at all in the dark about that one. The Baptist faith and message of 63, 1963 says that God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus will return personally and visibly in glory, there's that word glory, to the earth. The dead will be raised. Christ will judge all people in righteousness. The unrighteousness will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. And the righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive the reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. All Christians believe that when Christ comes to earth to reign and rule, that he will come in glory and power and no one will miss it. The dead will be raised. The peoples of the world of the ages will be judged, both living and the dead. Now, let's get to the signs I'm teaching on nine signs of the return of Jesus Christ. There may be other signs that I could have talked about, but these, I think, are the most important, especially in the context we're living in today. These all come from Scripture, and after I list them, we're going to cover them and cover more of the Scriptures they come from. The first sign is the general preaching of the good news of Jesus. Before Christ comes again, he said the whole world would, the gospel, the good news. The second sign that will precede the coming of Christ is the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the nation of Israel. Jesus predicted that before it happened, about 40 years before it happened. It happened in 70 AD. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus was 
dead for 35, 40 years before it happened, as he predicted. And the Jewish people, the Israelites, were dispersed throughout all the world. Another one is the restoration of Israel. So there was going to be the dispersion, which happened in 70 AD, and then the restoration of Israel. So from 70 AD to 1948, there was no nation of Israel. But in 1948, a new nation was born in the world. In fact, an ancient nation that had gone out of existence came into existence again. Number four, the scripture talks about the conversion of the Israelites or the Jewish people. At the end of the age, the apostle Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Number five, and that's where we're going to stop tonight, is the great apostasy. The scripture says there's going to be a great falling away, a great rebellion before the coming of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow night, we're going to list the others. The reign of the Antichrist. Before Christ comes, the Antichrist. This person predicted in scripture is going to manifest and going to deceive and rule the world for seven years, according to Scripture. Number seven, there's going to be extraordinary disturbances of nature. Jesus predicted that the forces of nature would go crazy, and people would freak out by the things that they were going to see happening in nature. Number eight, there's going to be a trumpet of resurrection. When Christ comes, it says there's going to be this loud trumpet call. Now, will it be a literal trumpet that an angel will be blowing on? I don't know, but there'll be a hallelujah noise that will be heard to signal the coming of Christ in glory. And finally, number nine, right before Christ comes, there'll be the trumpet. And number nine, the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the heavens. We'll talk about what that sign might be. So, the scripture deals with prophecies, sure predictions about what will happen as the age that we live in is consummated and Christ returns. Now, why does God give us this information? First of all, he wants you to know these signs in advance so that you're ready when he comes. And not only you, but he wants his church to be ready when he comes. Let me ask you this. If you knew Jesus was going to come in two months, would you live the same way you're living now? Or would you do something different? Now, I think we would all say, hey, I would do things logistically different because there may be certain things that that I don't need to do, like keep acquiring money to to sustain myself but spiritually would you live the same way or would you say you know what i had better get my life together or i had better share jesus with my friends better share christ with my mom or my dad so it's to get it's to get the church ready number two the lord gives us these prophecies in scripture so that you will not be deceived not only you but the whole church because jesus said that there is going to be such a demonic deception at the end of the age that even 
even those who know they've been chosen by God for salvation, if it were possible, Jesus said, even they would be deceived. And believe me, I'm going to be controversial if we get there tonight when I talk about apostasy, that there has been a lot of deception in the church. There are a lot of false teachers. And a lot of people are being deceived already. So God wants you to know the truth. He doesn't want you to be deceived by demonic counterfeit signs and wonders and demonic teachings. And number three, God gives us this information because he wants to bring people to repentance in him so that they repent of their sins, they turn to him as their savior, and they're fully converted. As these things begin to unfold, people who are not fully converted to Christ will stand little chance of not following away. Now, if you'll notice in those nine signs, I left out something that many people would say, hey, well, what about this happening before Jesus comes? Rapture. Will there be a rapture? Yes. The question is not will there be a rapture, but when will there be a rapture? Now, the rapture is not a sign that precedes the return of Christ. The rapture will happen, according to Scripture, when Jesus comes in glory. So at the end of the age, the consummation of the age, Jesus will come in glory, and we who are alive will be caught up. In fact, this phrase, Paul says, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And this word caught up in Latin is rapture. It means you're caught up. At the end of the age, when Christ comes in glory, the scripture tells us that's when we'll be caught up with him. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's, the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with a voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 51, let's read from there. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul talks about the same subject. Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. And in Scripture, a mystery is always something that gets revealed. The Christian faith has no secrets, so we don't have our little secrets that we keep from anyone. So every mystery in the scripture has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and been revealed or will be revealed. So Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Okay, he's talking about the resurrection. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. 
the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says that there'll be a loud command in the voice of the archangel and there will be the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will arise. And in 1 Corinthians, it says there will be a trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise. But it will be which trumpet? The first, the second, the third? What trumpet is it? And from 400 to 1850-ish, 1870-ish, the church had lost this ancient understanding that the early church had, that these things would be fulfilled. Not that they had been fulfilled already. And so when these men and women read the Bible, they read two things. One is that Jesus could come unexpectedly. And so we're to be ready, right? The time you think he's not coming, that's when he's going to come. And then they also read, but Jesus couldn't come until certain signs were fulfilled. And so they just did a little bit of logic, and it was erroneous logic, and they said, what's going to happen is there's going to be two comings. One, when he could come at any time, unexpectedly, that will be the rapture. Then after that, there'll be the seven years and all these things, Antichrist and all this will be fulfilled, and then, and then the resurrection, and then the trumpet. The misunderstanding was not that Christ could come at any time, but that Christ could come in any generation. And within that generation, that sees the signs start to be fulfilled that Christ could come unexpectedly in that generation. He said in that what? Day and hour. So we can know a season when Jesus will return by the signs beginning to be fulfilled. And the reason we, he wants us to know is that we'll be what? Yeah, we'll be prepared doesn't want you to be deceived. He doesn't want you to fall away. He doesn't want you to fall away because this time is going to be, Jesus says, the worst time the world has ever seen. And persecution is going to be so intense that many will fall away. Christ can come suddenly in any generation. But there are certain signs that need to be fulfilled until he can come suddenly in any generation. So let's get to the signs. What are they? Well, first of all, they're the general preaching of the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that God loves us, but we're sinners, and our sin has separated us from God. We need to turn away from our sins, confess our sins to the Lord, and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because he died vicariously for us, and by his blood we are forgiven. That's the offense to the cross, by the way. Why don't people like you? Why people are aggravated at you because you're a Christian? Is because of the cross. Jesus died for them. They can't save themselves. And since Jesus died to save them from their sins means that they're sinners, and they have to acknowledge their sin. It takes a, a very humble person or in my case, it takes a humbled person to receive that. And thank God, God humbled me so I could receive that grace, that free gift. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world for a testimony to all nations, and then shall the end come. 
Now, this particular sign could have been understood by the early church as being fulfilled in their day because their idea of the world was kind of small. <laughs> you know, if you, if you lived in Rome, how big was the world? So by 300 AD, the gospel had been proclaimed to most of the Roman world. But in our day and age, if you think about it, we live in a time where missiologists are saying that it's expected by the very end of my generation, the gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world. I think that's a fairly powerful sign. If you think how Christianity started, it started from like 12, 12 obscure dudes who were like fishermen. They weren't scholars. They weren't all-star football players. They were just these humble fishermen, like 12 of them Jesus picks in the most obscure, weird place in the world, right? Judea, Israel. And out of that little tiny place, that faith about Jesus takes over the whole world. It's a miracle in itself. So that's number one, is the gospel being proclaimed to the whole world. Now, the second one is the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of Israel in 70 A.D. Jesus said this. He said in about A.D., anywhere from A.D. 30 to 35. So that's 30, 35, maybe 40 years before it happened. The last week Jesus was alive. He said in Luke 21.20, you're welcome to turn there with me. Luke 21.20, he said, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city, the city of Jerusalem, get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that is written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled on by Gentiles, that's non-Jews, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus predicts that this temple, which was called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the stones of, of the temple were enormous. You know, the, the size maybe of, of, you can see this lawn area here, maybe half the lawn area, uh, huge stones. In 70 AD, it's said that the Roman army trapped the people in Jerusalem. But when the church in Jerusalem saw the Roman army coming, they left because they had that prophecy. They got out. But many stayed, not the church, but many non-Christians stayed and they were trapped in the city. And the Romans eventually broke through and someone started a fire in the temple. One of the Roman soldiers, they think, even though I believe they were told not to burn anything, they began burning. The temple was overlaid in gold. And when that fire started, there were this dry, timbered superstructure of the temple. And all that gold melted and went into the cracks of the rocks. And to get to the gold, the Roman soldiers 
pried every stone of the temple, pried it apart to get to the gold. And Jesus said, not only would Jerusalem be destroyed, not only would the temple be destroyed, but that not one stone. So it came explicitly true. So the gospel being preached to the whole world will be fulfilled in our lifetime. We'll hear about Jesus. The destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of Israel happened. But if you look at verse 24 of Luke 21, Jesus said that they, meaning the Jewish people, will fall by the sword and be taken to prisoners of all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In 1948, Israel was restored. And in 1967, Jerusalem was captured by the nation of Israel. From 70 A.D. to... 1967, Jerusalem was controlled by Gentiles. But in 67, during the Six-Day War, Israel was uh, at war with its neighbor Jordan, and it captured the Temple Mount. So since 1967, the Temple Mount has been in control of the Jewish people. That's a powerful sign. And until recently, That was, in my mind, the most powerful sign. But the fact that in 1967, Jerusalem is retaken by Israel, the trampling of the Gentiles, that prophecy has been fulfilled in my lifetime. That's incredible. Think about what nation in history has gone out of existence for 2,000 years and then come back to its land speaking a dead language, Hebrew. Hebrew was dead for 2,000 years. So the Jewish people are in the land, but they're in the land, but they don't have faith in Messiah. But yet they possess the Temple Mount. They possess Jerusalem. The trampling is over. Does it give you goosebumps a little bit? And so in the Gospels, there's three Gospels that are very closely related. There's four Gospels. But three of them are super closely related. They're called the synoptic gospel. Sin meaning, meaning uh, there's a synthesis. They're a lot the same. And they're, they're Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's three passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus gives this discourse about the end of the age. You'll find it in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. The disciples are in Jerusalem. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And the disciples look at the temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and they say, wow, Jesus, look at this magnificent temple. And that's when Jesus says, hey, do you see this temple? Not one stone will be left on top of the other. And that's one of the things they accused him of during his trial, that he said he'd destroy the temple. He didn't say he was going to destroy it, but he said it would be destroyed. When Jesus makes this prophecy about the destruction of the temple, Matthew's gospel gives us a more complete picture than Mark 13 or Luke 21. Because in Matthew 24, we see the disciples ask two questions. When will this happen? Meaning the destruction of the temple. And then what will be the sign of your coming? Those are two questions. When will this happen? The stuff that we recognize happened in 70 AD. And then what will be the sign of your coming? 
and Luke and Mark, these two questions kind of get blended in. Like, when's all this stuff going to happen? I'm paraphrasing. But Matthew really gives us a better idea that two questions are going to being asked. And Luke 21, as we just read, gives us an even, even more specific idea is that Jesus separates what happens in 70 A.D. than what happens at the end of the age. We have the prophecy of the destruction of the temple, and now we have the fulfillment of Luke 21, 24, where Jerusalem will be trampled on until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Who has Jerusalem? Israel does. I hope that gives you goosebumps. Because I think we're living on borrowed time. I really do. Seeing biblical prophecy being fulfilled before our eyes. Now you ask about Will the temple be rebuilt? Let me go to, and I hope I've got my, num- my numbers right, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul tells them about this rapture that's going to happen, and for whatever reason, Paul needs to write a second epistle because, because evidently some people say the rapture's already happened and the dead have been raised and they've been left behind. Okay, so they're freaking out. We got left. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, 3, he says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, okay, with the resurrection, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. When people read that, they say the temple must be rebuilt so the Antichrist can put his image in the temple. Some commentators who are futurists who believe that's going to be fulfilled in the future, some people will say temple is a metaphor for the church, or uh, a metaphor for, for religion itself. Uh, the most natural reading when Paul wrote this before 70 AD is that he was talking about the temple. Most scholars who accept the literal understanding of biblical prophecy will say they believe that the temple will be rebuilt, but they're not set in stone about it. Whether or not the temple needs to be rebuilt before Christ returns, I didn't put that as one of the nine signs because I'm not sure, and really nobody is, whether temple is just a metaphor. And this is the next sign that we're going to deal with, and that is the great apostasy. So the signs that I've already mentioned are either fulfilled or they're about to be fulfilled in the proclamation of the gospel. Until recently... If you would have said, what's the one sign that you would say would make you think that Jesus is going to come in your generation? I'd say, well, Israel being restored and the restoration of Jerusalem to the Jewish people. If you would have asked me a year ago or two years ago, John, do you, do you think Christ is going to come in your generation? I'd say, I really don't know because I, don't see, I see that sign of Jerusalem being restored but I'd like to see some others. This next sign I am beginning to see fulfilled in a way I didn't see it in the 70s during the Jesus movement when we all thought we were going to be raptured right away. The Jesus movement, we, were just, we had a rapture fever. 
Okay, we were all worried. Like, oh, I hope we can get married before the rapture. <laughs> you know? But this next sign, I have seen impulses happening in the church that would lead me to believe that we very well may be on the verge of a great apostasy. And listen, Paul tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So if some of this stuff that I'm going to talk about touches you, remember this is that there is grace. There is grace in Christ. We can repent. We can start anew in Jesus. Listen, I've made a lot of messes in my life, and God, God has allowed me to go forward. Now, I'm not going to spill before you all. You don't want to hear it anyway. You know, I did this, 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 and this. So if some of this touches you, don't think I'm picking on you tonight. But Paul says to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, that they shouldn't be terrified that the resurrection or the day of the Lord has happened already because he says there has to be the rebellion. This Greek word of rebellion is apostasy. Apostasy. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, let no one deceive you in any way for unless the apostasy comes first and the lawless one is revealed, that's the Antichrist, the one doomed to perdition. So Paul says, no, you didn't get left behind. There hasn't been an apostasy. And the Antichrist hasn't been revealed. So briefly, let's just talk about apostasy. The NIV translates this Greek word apostasia, apostasy, as rebellion. The rebellion has to come first. The King James Version says the falling away has to come first. In 1 Timothy 4.1 Paul says the Spirit says that in latter times some will apostatize. That means will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits in the doctrines of demons. In 1 John chapter 2 and in chapter 4 and in 2 John 7, he talks about Antichrist teaching, more signs of apostasy. He talks about the denial that Jesus is Christ. 1 John 4, 3, he talks about the denial that Jesus is not from God. In 2 John 7, he talks about the Antichrist teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh. The scriptures teach that there's going to be all of these Antichrist demonic teachings that worm its way into the church that believers buy into. Now, we could argue whether they're true believers or they're not believers, once saved, always saved. That's not a discussion that I really think would be productive today. But know this is that regardless, in the last times, there's going to be a great falling away in the church. Now, what would be some signs of apostasy? If you look at one sense of the word apostasy, it's rebellion or it can be defection. So people are going to be defecting from the clear teaching of scriptures. We used to say in the 70s that the most miserable person is a backslidden Christian because they're so convicted of their sins. But I'm seeing a new generation rise up in the church that are in willful sin and there's no conviction. The thing that scares me the most is not the sin, it's the lack of conviction. 
And that is a sign of rebellion or lawlessness. And the Antichrist is called the lawless one. So what are some rejections of the explicit teaching of Scripture in the church? One is fornication. Super common that people in the church who say they're believers, they may not be faithful churchgoers, but they are, are claiming faith believers that they're shacking up together. They're living together. We've seen it over and over again in our ministry. That's rebellion. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm living with this gal or I'm living with this guy. I know it's wrong. I'm doing it anyway. I'm, you know, I know the Holy Spirit's grieved about it. But we're seeing people who have no grief, who, are, who will argue, no, I'm okay. People who are getting intoxicated and claim the name of Jesus. People who are getting stoned. I had one pastor say, I won't go out with these people in my church because I'm not going to watch them get drunk in front of me. But hey, it's just wine, right? Because it's wine, it's like, it's okay to get intoxicated on that. Or it's craft beer, you know? <laughs> And I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, you can't have a drink or what. I'm not saying, but people who are just getting intoxicated. We had one young lady t tell us that she came to faith in Christ, a radical born-again uh, faith in Christ, that, that she got hooked up with a, a home group in a biblically sound conservative church, and the leaders of that home group were drinking wine after the Bible study, and she said they were all getting drunk. In fact, she said she got so drunk that she blacked out. Scripture says don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the tough one. It's not judgment, but we're seeing divorce without cause in the church. We're seeing serial divorce in the church. If there's one thing Jesus was against in Scripture, it's divorce. There is cause for divorce, according to Christ. But we're seeing serial divorce in the church. It's a sign of lawlessness, of rebellion. Here's another one. This could get me canceled. The embrace of homosexuality. Seeing the rise of gay theology. It's a sign of apostasy. And there's exceptions, folks. But when, when you encounter the gay church... You encounter liberalism, the downgrading of the, the gospel that is preached by Paul in Romans and Galatians that requires repentance of sins and discipleship. I don't mean to be controversial, but I see signs of apostasy. Human-centered gospel of hedonism rather than repentance, discipleship, and the lordship of Jesus. Again, human-centered gospel. Not a Christ-centered gospel, but a human-centered gospel. The good news is all about you rather than Jesus. This is the theology, is that Jesus comes to your life. But if you read the gospel, we don't call Jesus into our life. He calls us where? Into his life. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, so the life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's some signs of the distortion of the gospel with the human-centered carnal gospel. First of all, the material carnal prosperity. Why did Jesus suffer and die for you? Is so that you could be materially prosperous. In fact, the more wealthy you are, the more favored by God you are. 
That's why Jesus shed his blood. Yeah, he, he shed his blood for your sins, but he shed his blood so you could be wealthy and rich. And this is the one that I think that is a blind side to evangelical Christianity right now. That many people who would think, we're Bible-preaching, believing churches, we preach the gospel, but here's really what you hear on any given Sunday. If you accept Jesus into your life, he's going to improve you. That if you accept Jesus into your life, your life is going to be better. And there's truth to it, don't get me wrong. But every Sunday, it's about five principles to becoming a more sound Christian. And those, those aren't bad, but it becomes easy law. And you're not living by grace anymore. You're living by biblical principles that become easy law. Again, a hedonistic gospel. How about hyper-grace teaching? Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ called us to repent of our sins. Hypergrace teachers teach that all of our sins are forgiven and there's no need to confess anymore. That, that doctrine is not in Scripture and it was never taught in the life of the church. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was for believers. And hypergrace goes into, well, you know, I can get drunk after Bible study. Hypergrace is I can live with my girlfriend. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. God doesn't send people to hell. It's tough when you hear people say that. God doesn't send good people to hell. The scripture says there's none good, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. Now I hope you're hearing, you're, you're, you're hearing encouraging words from your preachers, but, but man, if your preacher isn't preaching repentance in the blood of Christ, get out of that church. On the internet, we're seeing in liberal so-called churches a denial of the, either the full humanity or the full deity of Jesus Christ. There's liberal churches who do not believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and it is very incarnate God. He is true God and true man. If someone less than God died on the cross, your sins are not forgiven. Hey folks, this is Father John. Thanks for listening to the message today on the nine signs of the return of Jesus Christ, part one. The last part got cut off, so I just want to briefly go over what I told the folks before they left the seminar that I was teaching. And what we need to do in light of this information is to be fully converted to Christ. Number one, as I said on the audio recording that you've listened to, be converted to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Confess your sins to him, entrust your life to him, and follow him as his disciples. The second thing you need to do to be fully converted is to commit yourself to the church of Jesus Christ. One of the early bishops of the church said, no one can have God for father without the church for mother. The church is the body of Christ. It's not like his body, but it is his body. It's the 
expression of how he is going to forward his mission, his ministry, his presence on the earth. There are so many out-of-church Christians today. And folks, sadly, that is a sign of spiritual apostasy, disconnecting from the life of the church. This isn't God's will for our lives at all. And he's calling us to return. And the third thing that we need to do in light of this information is fully commit ourselves to the cause of Christ. The cause of Christ is bigger than your job. The cause of Christ is bigger than your family. The cause of Christ is even bigger than your ministry. It's bigger than my ministry. The cause of Christ is first and foremost in my life and in your life in the world today. If we're fully converted to the cause of Christ, no matter what pestilence, no matter what plague, no matter what pandemic, no matter even if the tribulation comes upon us, that we'll be prepared for times of troubles and we'll stand fast in the grace and light of Christ. May the Lord bless you, and I hope you can tune into part two of this message. Thanks for listening.